1: caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. When I first got involved in clinical research, I remember there was this a statistic that the lag time between bench and bedside in rehabilitation was 15 to 20 years. And the idea was that in oncology, you couldn't have that lag time because people die of cancer, whereas typically nobody dies of bad therapy. Do you think that the translation is still that long? What would you estimate is is the or is it impossible to, to estimate? It depends on the therapist
2: kind of a deal. It depends on the treatment and it depends on the kind to support the treatments got a lot of it's cultural as well but I would say that 15 to 20 years you know from moving it from the research into regular clinical practice would be considered to be a very early uh, adoption that would be considered to be rapid Mm. it's more than 15 to 20 years in some cases I think it's a couple generations you know, when we sit down with our, our therapists and ask them, you know, do you use the adjunct therapies? The answer is usually not a lot. And why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Timing. But it's just like it's not part of the culture. Like, it's just not part of the culture, you know? And and, and, and you ask them, would you like to do it? And of course, we would. I mean, why wouldn't we, right? Uh, I'm trying something new or trying this new technology or this new treatment. But I don't know where to start. It's not what we've traditionally done, it's not what we tend to do. I'm I'm busy enough as it is. And so these treatments don't get incorporated or added. So you know the re- the reasons are legit and they're fine, but I mean if we're looking at ways that we might be able to further improve recovery and 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 the next big step because you know one of the things that you get a feeling in stroke rehab is people just not quite sure where we're going to go next. It strikes me that this is a lost opportunity that we could take advantage of.
1: We have two great guests today on Noggins and Neurons, both from the exemplary evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation, and they do much more than that as they'll outline. First, Dr. Robert Tiesel, MD. He is a doctor of PM&R, physical medicine and rehabilitation, he graduated from the University of Ottawa. He was a consultant physiatrist at University Hospital in London, Ontario from 1986 to 2002, and a consultant physiatrist from 2002 till this present day at Parkwood Hospital, St. Joseph's Healthcare, London, Ontario. He is now concurrently the research director of the department of PM&R at both Western University and Parkwood Institute. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including two in 2018, the Lawson Impact Scientist of the Year Award and the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine slash National Stroke Association Award for Excellence in Post-Acute Stroke. He's authored unbelievably 350 peer-reviewed journal articles, 22 book chapters, 60 monographs. That's a detailed written study of a single specialized subject 345 published abstracts and 1600 posters and presentations he's developed a successful research team and has supervised many graduate students including three veneer scholars And those are people in this case pursuing an MD and a PhD. In 2001 or so, he created the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation, the EBRSR, which we keep raving about, an annually updated review of the literature and subsequent evidence for stroke rehabilitation interventions and practices. Although you'll note in the interview that they're gonna go bi-annually because they have a lot of other things they need to do. The EBRSR is now in its 19th edition. Using this idea, he helped create similar annual reviews for brain injury, that's called the ERB, AI and spinal cord injury, the SCI RE.
0: We are also joined by Marcus who is currently the project coordinator for the ebrsr marcus obtained his undergraduate degree in neuroscience at western university he previously worked with dr jorn Diedrichsen in the motor control laboratory at western's brain and mind institute before moving to the core group at parkwood Okay, Deb
1: and I would like to extend a warm Noggins and Neurons welcome to Dr. Robert Teasel and Mr. Marcus Sakley. Thanks so much for carving out some time for us this evening. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. No better way to spend a Friday night. Yep. (laughs) So I think in... The last episode that we did, I suggested that we spend so much time talking about the EBRSR that if we ever change the name of our podcast, we should change it to the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Rehabilitation Podcast. Maybe we will if we wouldn't get sued, but we've at least mentioned the EBRSR and or the Evidence-Based Review of Moderate to Severe Acquired Brain Injury, which I still call the ABI EBR and or Stroke Engine in just about every episode that we've had except maybe the first couple. And we did two episodes called What Works 1 and What Works 2 where we based everything on what appeared to do well in the EBRSR. We have two other episodes on what doesn't work, also based on what looked like it didn't work too well in the EBRSR. You, you see a trend here?
2: Yeah. I, I'm, the trend I'm seeing is I should ask for money for this whole podcast. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> You know what? Half the episodes,
1: like um, yeah, I mentioned that to Deb. Yeah, we owe him some money. But we also have an episode and a half. This makes it even worse. So I'm going to owe more to you guys on Stroke Engine. The four of us had a quick chat a couple of weeks ago. And doc, you talked about the long arc of the story of the EBRSR. Would you mind talking about the early days of the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation, its genesis and, and how it got from there to here?
2: Yeah, um, it actually has a really odd beginning. And I, I think it just speaks to how things just kind of happen and you don't expect it. And certainly wasn't planned in any way, shape or form. It's not the direction we had thought we were going to or I thought I was going to go. It actually started back in 1998 with the uh, Ontario government at that time had proposed legislation to, and I was interested in chronic pain and chronic pain research at the time. To um, stop paying for chronic pain disability, um, the idea that if they stopped paying for it, it would disappear. So there was a hue and cry, and those of us who are interested in academically actually um, did presentations to the uh, to uh, par- you know our provincial parliamentary committees, and they came to the conclusion they might be wrong, and so they actually formed a group to do a large evidence based review of chronic pain to look at what treatments might be helpful and, in fact, whether chronic pain and disability, there was evidence for chronic pain actually causing true disability and it wasn't just funded by secondary gain and the fact that they can make money out of it. And so, I spent a lot of time with a group of of eight people and uh, two of them were PhD epidemiologists and we eventually produced this report. That ended up being published as a supplement in one of the pain journals on the evidence base for chronic pain disability and and, and actually changed the legislation. The government backed off the legislation based on that report. and, And I was able to actually witness how evidence can actually change policy. So it was really an eye opener for me that, you know, it was the first time I actually saw research truly applied, particularly at a policy level. So that You know, I was doing a lot of stroke rehab at the time, a lot of stroke rehab research, you know, but it didn't occur to me that I would do anything like this in stroke rehab until um, the Ontario government and the Heart and Stroke Foundation put together a um, Ontario and Ontario is our largest province. It's now 15 million people in Canada. And, you know, as you know, healthcare, we have social healthcare and it's basically run by the provinces, not run by the feds. And so the province of Ontario wanted to do this big stroke strategy and uh, provincial stroke strategy and asked if I'd be on a committee making recommendations with regard to stroke rehab. And, you know, this was back in 1990, back in 2000, when we were doing this, this was a big deal. Like, and, and, you know, when people would ask what kind of evidence exists for stroke rehab, people would say, well, you know, I can't think of more than four or five RCTs and there really isn't much of an evidence base and, and it's really remarkable how much things have changed. And so we had an interdisciplinary group that had to come up with recommendations. And my goodness, they couldn't, right? They fought over everything. And, you know, they, this therapist thought that this therapy should be more important and that this treatment worked better than that treatment and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So I said, you know, we don't seem to be getting anywhere. Why don't I go back and try and duplicate what we did with the chronic pain? And I, I sat in my kitchen table for two months, and I'd already done a fair number of reviews in stroke rehab anyways. And I came up with something that's kind of a very crude version of what currently exists in the um, uh, SREBR. And I brought it back to the committee, and the committee thought it was super cool because we had all these studies that showed what worked and what didn't work, or at least appeared to. And the committee was then able to come up with a number of recommendations. It was quite successful, actually, and had a lot of influence on the province. And we could argue it was evidence-based because, believe it or not, that was the standard back then. And and one of the recommendations was that they really liked the idea so much that they decided in 2001 to fund a formal review of the uh, the stroke rehab literature. And that's how the rehab evidence-based review got started. Back in 2001, We put together our first edition, which went out in 2002, and it took us a full year to do it, Um, and that was the first EBRSR. I can tell you, that one at that time had 400 randomized controlled trials in it, and that at the time was, was, was a real epiphany for a lot of people, was that that much evidence actually existed. Uh, there was probably, I would say, a handful of people around the world that kind of had an understanding that that was how much literature existed. Most people had no idea. Most people just assumed there was very little of a strong evidence basis for stroke rehab. Remember, we were doing a lot of Bobad back then, right? Like that was the standard for most of uh, the stuff we were doing. And so, you know, I would often go to lectures and I'd say to people, how many RCTs do you think there are in stroke rehab? And, you know, people would Say two, five, 10, the occasional enlightened person might say 20. And then I'd say there's 400. And everybody would be just shocked, just shocked, right? And they go, wow, wow. Even the neurologist in particular would go, wow, you guys really have a good, strong evidence base. You guys should use that, you know? Start <laughs> developing more evidence based practice. And so since then, every year we've renewed the EBSR. We're now into our 19th edition, and we're looking at over 3,000 randomized controlled trials. Wow, exponential. Well, you know, you have to understand that, you know, we do, we, you know, we started this thing and it was really successful because it was really starting to influence a lot of guidelines and a lot of people were starting to refer to it. And, you know, even researchers were referring to it before they started their projects. So it was becoming fairly popular. And in 2004, I was approached by the spinal cord groups down here, the Rick Hansen in particular, and we ended up putting one together for brain injury and for spinal cord. So we also have those too. But stroke, you know, is the monster. Um, Stroke has over 3,000 randomized, stroke rehab has over 3,000 randomized controlled trials, which is double brain injury, spinal cord, and MS combined. So the unique thing about stroke rehab is it has – more evidence by far than any other area of neurorehabilitation. It is the always the leader, always the one where the most studies have been done, always the one that has the most evidence attached to it. So we've always been at this huge advantage with the EBSR compared to the other ones, in that we've always had this incredibly rich database. I mean, we're talking 3,000 randomized controlled trials of largely therapies, um, you know, some some of the secondary complications and um, and some of the uh, uh, psychosocial stuff, but two thirds of that is motor rehab. Two thirds of those three thousand randomized controlled trials, and it's growing at the rate of two hundred randomized controlled trials a year. So that's kind of a, a summary of the EBSR. We we continue to be funded uh, by the um, Canadian Partnership for Stroke Recovery, which is uh, attached to the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada. So they've been fantastic. They fund us every year and, and, and have for the past basically 20 years, along with the um, Canadian Stroke Network when it was around. But, you know, the, the challenges we still, for the amount of data we have to go through every year, we are chronically underfunded, unfortunately. So there's so many more things we could do if we had some additional resources, but we've been really fortunate to get resources every year. That doesn't happen very often. So we've been really lucky that way. And we're grateful for all the help we get. And it's that consistency that I think has really helped us as well. The fact that we get funded every year and we're able to continually renew the EBSR and keep it up to date. Because so many of these things, as you know, people put them together and then five to six years later, they're out of date. And um, we've been able to maintain it on a yearly basis.
1: That's what I always loved about it. It's a meta-analysis, but it's rolling. So I can, you know, you see meta-analyses two or three years later, you're not sure whether all that information is up to date enough to present it to clinicians. But
2: you guys update this pretty much every year, right? We're starting to run into problems and maybe I'll let Marcus address this to some extent, but we just so much stuff we have to deal with. There's so much material now that we're probably going to doing it, uh, on a two-year cycle. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And that's because there's such an increase of randomized control
2: trials? You want to talk about that, Marcus?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think like Bob said, you know, part of the problem is, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but part of the problem is the amount of literature that's coming out on a yearly basis and the manpower that's required really to sort through it all, check it all, extract it all, and then incorporate that into this document it's certainly become trickier to do, you know, properly, um, and so a two-year basis makes it a little easier on our end, at least to 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 be make sure that we're getting everything, uh, and we're and we're incorporating it in a, an efficient way, as opposed to maybe you know missing uh, studies. And maybe Marcus, you could speak
2: to how the expectations of reviews have changed. You know that people expect a higher standard now than they did. 10 years ago. That's very true. Yeah. To adapt to that and pivot with that.
3: I think with the uh, Prisma guidelines that have come out, you know, the, those are now pretty much a standard across any sort of peer reviewed publication. As far as publishing your 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 data, you need to follow these particular guidelines, which are of course uh, a benefit to the quality of the work. But and what, what are being... those guidelines? Would you mind reviewing those? Sure. Yeah. Essentially, what it is 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 a set of reporting guidelines and then subsequent methodology for creating these systematic reviews. And it usually involves the fact that you need two independent reviewers, right, to go through and screen the articles, the title and abstract. You would then uh, screen the full text, and then again, two independent reviewers to verify that the data is correct. You'd have a third doing a consensus on any uh, um, discrepancies between that data extraction and the method in which you report that data is important as well. So, so that's,
1: not, that's not your job though, right? I mean, you compile it and then you give it off to these separate reviewers who can kind of take an unbiased perspective?
3: Yes. Yeah. We, I mean, the EBRSR itself, uh, isn't necessarily following Prisma guidelines. We don't have to do that. It's not a peer reviewed publication, but I think for the purposes of using that data, uh, and other researchers, even using that data, we're trying to move in that direction where we will now be, uh, doing the lit searches, performing the various extraction methods in a way that follows Prisma guidelines and can be used uh, more effectively by other people. Um, and it obviously takes a bit more time. Do, and it, do and,
2: it, and this is a requirement if you want to get your work published. So, yeah. you know, one of the, the methods we've had in terms of knowledge translation was being able to um, easily publish a lot of the work that we have done and, and and you know, build on each year as we would go through it. Um, now the expectation is that you've done a Prisma evaluation for like in the upper extremity where there's 1300 RCTs, you know, motor recovery, the upper extremity, 1300 RCTs you're expected to have done a full Prisma evaluation to come to that total. So it is, it is, it is more onerous. And that's one of the reasons we've had to pivot and shift to um, um, moving it to a two year cycle, simply because the expectations of the quality of reviews has gone um, quite uh, much higher just in the last decade. And which is a real positive, right? I mean, it's, It's a a showing of maturity. (laughs) We're we're going from from a time when I first started where nobody even knew how many randomized control trials there were and assumed there were four or five, to now we have massive data sets which have extreme expectations on the quality of how that data set was gathered and analyzed. Um, I I just… I think a lot of uh, people now take that stuff for granted, but that's just over the last two decades we've seen that change.
1: I wonder, when I first got involved in clinical research, I remember there was this, I don't know if it was a statistic or data, it was based on anything, but that the lag time between bench and bedside in rehabilitation was 15 to 20 years. And the idea was that in oncology, you couldn't have that lag time because people die of cancer. Whereas typically nobody dies of bad therapy. Do you think that the translation is still that long? What would you estimate is, is the, or is it impossible to, to estimate? It depends on the therapist kind of a deal.
2: It depends on the treatment and it depends on the kind of support the treatment's got. A lot of it's cultural as well. But I would say that 15 to 20 years, you know, from moving it from the research into regular clinical practice would be considered to be a very early uh, adoption. That would be considered to be rapid. Mm. It's more than 15 to 20 years. In some cases, I think it's a couple of generations. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it's fine to, you know, we're doing a lot of research and we do these really cool reviews and all that stuff. But, you know, the whole idea of knowledge translation is a whole different kettle of fish and much, much harder. And the idea of being able to change clinical practice is really difficult.
1: Well, one of the great things about the EBRS are the bullet points that you can get to the clinical bottom line. And then if you want more information, you can sift through all the stuff that is below that. But the fact that you guys made the effort to make this stuff approachable and usable, maybe tomorrow in the clinic, I think was was great. And it really helped my career because I did 700 talks in the last decade to clinicians, and I could go into the room, feel pretty comfortable, even though most of the people in the room had more education with regard to rehab than I did, but feel comfortable that what I was presenting to them wasn't just new to them, but was approachable because I would just, there's more money I owe you. It, it was just take these bullet points from the
2: EBRSR and say, look at this stuff. This is this is great. Well, well it's funny though, you know, in, when I designed it back in, or the group of us designed it back in 2001, we designed it in a specific way. And we just assumed that we were dealing with busy clinicians with low attention spans. All right. That was our assumption. And I think it was a reasonable assumption. And, and it's I pretty just, accurate. I based it on my Um, my own self, right? Busy clinician with a low attention span. And so the key points, which are at the beginning of each chapter, were were really designed to be for the person who only had 30 seconds. And that's all he was going to give you, or she was going to give you. So the key points were for the 30 second person. And we figured that was probably 90% of our audience and then we figured that another 7 or 8% might be ambitious and go back to the end and read the conclusions which took 5 minutes to read right and then we figured there's probably two to three percent who actually read the content. But the thing is, for people to have some sense of trust and credibility in your key points, you had to do all the other stuff, right? It had to be there so that the occasional person who would go into it would be able to verify whether, in fact, it was they agreed or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. I my argument would be, and I think when we do our our assessments of you know page views and how long people spend on the site, probably most people just go straight to the key points and they just want to know the answer. And they're not interested in all the nuances and all that. They just want to know what does the um, evidence seem to suggest Hmm. in in 30 seconds or less.
1: I know last time we talked and then you just mentioned it that a lot of this is focused on the upper extremity. Is that because it takes up so much room in the brain? Is it because we figure if we can figure out a finger extension, we can figure out just about anything? What are what are the things that are are really making it Is it is it because of animal models because we have great rats and mice that have very Human-like movement of their hands—is it all of those things? What's what is it with the upper extremity? What is it about the upper extremity that's so important?
3: Well, I, you know, I can speculate. I think uh, my opinion would be that it really has to do, more specifically, almost with hand function. Um, I think that that is a big part of gaining independence and in a lot of the activities of daily living, the things that you do, even when it comes to something like ambulation. If we can get them close. That might be good enough. You know, we we can get them up and moving or walking. They might still have some asymmetrical gait patterns, but whatever the case may be, they can, they can use the ambulation that they have. But dexterity is super, super tricky. And it's one of the more complicated motor functions that we have producing those very fine dexterous movements. It's very, you know, we take it for granted really a lot of the time, but it's a very, very complicated issue. And one that really, really can affect a, a person's independence, their ability to go about their day without receiving help. So I think that that is a big part of it. It's number one, how important it is to independence and recovery of, of, you know, function and, and your functional goals. Um, and then how difficult it is. It's really, really tough compared to some of the other stuff that, uh, that is in motor rehabilitation.
2: Just to, just to put it in a bit of perspective for the audience, there's, there's as I mentioned before, well over 3,000 randomized controlled trials in stroke rehab, of which over 1,300 are just the upper extremity motor recovery alone. So that means that over 40% of all the randomized controls in stroke rehab involve the upper extremity from a motor standpoint, you know, the interventions. And so so it, it seems to be that it is the most dominant Feature when it comes to stroke rehab research. And I think in part it's because hemiparesis is an iconic feature of stroke. I think it has to do with who does research. You know, a lot more research is done, I think by physiotherapists and to some extent, occupational therapists than other therapy groups. I think it's easier to do and more interesting than say some of the more complex cognitive things that we have because, you know, total, I think in the EBSR, we probably only have Four to 500 trials that look at cognitive rehab. We got 1,300 that look at the upper extremity alone. So there's something about the upper extremity that is important, as Marcus has said, but I think is also easier and more interesting to study by a group that are, I think, fairly aggressive when it comes to research.
1: So you don't buy into the idea that it's all the rat choppers? Um, n-
2: I wouldn't know how to interpret what you just said.
1: <laughs> so we, we had Teresa a. Jones. Uh, she's a neuroscientist from UT Austin, and she does a lot of work in the forelimbs of rats and mice. And that the human-like paws, I mean, it's creepy. They look like little um, witch hands and they even have the long, ugly fingers and not quite the opposable thumb, but they really grasp and release very much like humans do. And I wonder if that's that as some of the, um, the impact on why we focus on, because we have this
2: great analog in, in the upper extremity. I'm, I'm going to give you an opinion, but I, I think that animal studies really help to move forward in terms of researchers who then apply those kind of things clinically to look at the neurophysiology of recovery in post-stroke in humans. I'm not sure that animal studies have the same degree of influence on randomized controlled trials. Yeah, that's exactly what she said. I think randomized controlled trials are often done because they're cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have almost 200 robotic randomized controlled trials in the upper extremity. I mean, that's just wild. That's almost as much as brain injury in total. I mean, it's, it's incredible because robotics are cool. And what do people do? They buy a robotic machine and then they think we probably need to do a trial, right? Um, so I think a lot of it is, is interest, right? What people are interested in, what's new, um, what can get funding, that kind of stuff. But I don't really know. If I was really being honest with you, I don't really know why the upper extremity is overrepresented when compared to aphasia or compared to neglect or compared to depression or compared to the lower extremity, which is the next highest group. So um, I think we'd have to be honest and say, we don't know, but it is an interesting observation we make. If you go into traumatic brain injury, you'll find very few randomized control trials, very few that look at the upper extremity. It's hmm. rare. To the point, the ratio is probably 40 to 50 to one in stroke versus brain injury. So there's something about stroke... Recovery and how patients recover, and how we treat stroke patients—that has really, I think, resulted in stroke being unique in this. Looking at the upper extremity to the degree that they do. Then hmm. I don't fully—I mean, I can't say I fully understand. I think Marcus had a good answer. I don't know if it's the right one, but um, you know, it sounded good, and it sounds as good as anything I can think of. Um, you know, I mean, it makes sense, but. I, in the end, I'd have to say I'm not quite sure, but it's a trend that's increasing, not decreasing percentage yeah. wise, which is really interesting.
1: Deb, talk just keep asking questions until the sun goes down. So you better get in here.
0: I do have a question, and it might lead into what else. What we have spoken of before, but I am curious to know. Going back to the committee that got all of this started with the EBRSR, how did stroke rehab change in Ontario? Did it change in Ontario? What, what was the result? And, um,
2: and and that'll lead us into I think where I think we need to go next. And one, Ontario, I think, has, has been exemplary and um, in 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 the world in terms of stroke rehab, and and I think has probably been the the leader in Canada. Um, you know, there are other provinces that have done some parts of Stroke Rehab better, but I think overall in ontario has been the most organized. It's the largest province. So it's had the most resources. Um the thing that that, and I think it's just obviously it's not a, a Canadian thing. It's happening all over the the developed world is this idea, what I'm going to call standardization of care, which we had talked about earlier, which I think has just had a spectacular impact. I think you know, having been in this business for well over 30 years uh, longer than that, actually, and and watched how the changes have occurred. They really are amazing changes in what I would call the standardization of key principles in stroke rehab and the adoption of those throughout the Western world. And, and one of them is, and, and certainly this was a big push in Ontario, is, is the need for specialized stroke rehab services. You know, the stroke unit studies that came out in the 1990s were pretty clear that, you know, rehabbing patients on specialized stroke rehab units tended to result in better outcomes. The other, the big three in terms of uh, the content of the rehab had to do with getting patients into rehab earlier. So the earlier they came, the better they seemed to do. So there was a, that fit with the concepts around neuroplasticity being much more uh, pronounced early on. Um, some of the animal work actually supported that. And that's one area where animal work probably had a big impact. The fact that the more intensive therapy the patients got, the better they seemed to do. So this emphasis on intensity, of which I think the Americans were probably the leaders with your three-hour rule, as as it was mandated by In fact, that was how we model a lot of our, our um, Ontario and Canadian system. Our guidelines are based on that three hour rule. And everybody says, why'd you pick the three hour rule? Because in the UK, it's two hours and 15 minutes. I said, because the Americans did it and they have pretty good results. So that, that whole idea of intensity matters and the um, idea of task-specific therapy. Because as you know, when we all started out, Bobath, and not the Bobath that's taught now, but the original Bobath, the neurodevelopmental type techniques were slower and uh, seemed to be an indication in the literature that when patients were treated with more task-specific therapy, that you seem to get results quicker. Um. So the best way to learn to play tennis is, to play tennis. The best way to learn how to get dressed is to practice dressing uh, versus those repetitive activities that therapists used to do with the Bobath training. Bobath training worked, it just was slower. And that was the challenge. So the big three, I call it the idea of task specific therapy, intensive therapy, and getting patients uh, in early became sort of increasingly bedrock principles that determined better outcomes and better rehab care. And in our in our country in our country and certainly in our province, it took us a, a while to get people to finally accept that. And I always joke that you know we knew that we had finally accomplished what we needed to accomplish when the administrators all agreed that that's what needed to be done, right? <laughs> because once the administrators agree that this was good care and um, that that we uh, were able to actually then I think mold our system so it was focused more around those principles. Now we still ourselves as does most centers struggle with the full operationalization of that. But I think there's widespread agreement that that's what constitutes good care. And then the final piece is, is the outpatient piece, which has taken longer to bring in, which, you know, I think it's been well shown helps to solidify whatever patients learn in inpatient rehab when they go home. And so those five things are probably what I would call the five key areas of stroke rehab that have resulted in a really dramatic change in rehab over the last 15 to 20 years and have resulted in, I think, you know exemplary care compared to what we used to provide before, uh, which was much more therapist dependent um, and was hit and miss depending on where you got your care. I think we've been able to standardize that um, both in your country and in our country. And I think as a result, the care is much better the key to better stroke care right now but unfortunately it's interesting that you know we've been able to accomplish this and I think we've pretty much had it in place now for the last five to eight years on a consistent basis across the country but the big question I often hear people asking is where do we go next
0: We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and... Whether or not people donate are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true,
1: um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address?
0: I do. It's at Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple.
1: It is, and it's in our title. So, if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this, and we want to keep it going. And uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. and Yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the...
0: The Brain Injury Association of America?
1: That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment.
0: It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it.
1: Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons.
0: Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Okay,
1: great. Thanks, guys. Thanks.
2: And I think that's part of what we're going to talk about today, eh? You know, we've, we've been able to, 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 to really do well with this standardization of care, but we're now kind of struggling, okay, is that it? Or is there more that we should or could be doing to try and uh, build upon that standardization of care to um, provide uh, better outcomes for our patients?
0: I'm curious to know if is there some sort of a standardized length of time that people stay on therapy in inpatient rehab? Is that more goal driven, progress driven?
2: It, it depends on the the province. Um, our province is um, has a rehab patient group system where you're you know when you're admitted based on you know certain elements of the FIM score, your age. So it's a very um, well-developed algorithm that's Ontario-based. You're allowed to stay a certain amount of days. Um, So if you're a very mild stroke, the expectation is you won't come to stroke rehab. If you're a severe, younger stroke, you can stay 50 days. The average length of stay in Ontario, which is the most aggressive uh, province in terms of moving patients out of the system, the average length of stay for your standard stroke patients is about 30 days. 30 to 35 days, which I think is a little longer than it is in the U.S.
0: I think it is, too. And it seems like there's a big push to um, not admit people to inpatient rehab, the three-hour facilities. And there's also a big push to discharge people before they're truly ready to be discharged here in the U.S.,
2: yeah, I, I've heard 17 days is quite common, and that would be considered pretty aggressive for um, Canada. We we would, I kind of describe that as rehab light. Um, I have to say, I, I've always been impressed when I go down to the U.S. on how aggressive people are in terms of treatment there. You know, in terms of providing an intense environment, but it seems awfully short. It seems like you could accomplish more by keeping patients in longer. I agree. But I, wonder, I think I think your if anyone cares. I think your system care. I think your system's a bit of an anomaly. Um, I would say that the length of stays in Canada are pretty similar to what you see elsewhere. And even within our own country, there are quite significant differences among the provinces. And some of the provinces have length of stays that are longer, quite a bit longer. I'm not sure that that's a good use of resources, to be honest with you. I think that just because we in a Ontario have a pretty strong algorithmic-type system, and then the other provinces have just taken longer to adopt those types of things um, because they're smaller. But, but uh, nevertheless, I, I, you know, this is a an interesting debate that we don't have much anymore. But we used to have a lot. Is, is what are the right lengths of stay, and what are the best way to treat people? And um, um, I, I think I think we've 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 come across something that we think is um, an appropriate length of stay. And I I don't think there's a big push in Canada to try and shorten the length of stays to something that's more attuned to what you see in the U.S.
1: So, when you talk about what's coming down the pike, I mean, you know, for my money, I think you probably know more about stroke rehabilitation, stroke recovery than anybody else on the planet. I'm not blowing smoke. I just owe you money. That's all. Um, so, one of the things you talked about last time, and maybe we could go into a little bit of treatments that you see coming down the pike, looking into your crystal ball. You had talked about priming the brain, specifically using imagery, action observation. And I think the other one was mirror therapy. Um, And then of course, I went into the research frantically looking for articles about priming. It turns out there's quite a few and I'm behind the curve. Can you use priming as... As sort of an entree into a crystal ball, looking into what's going to happen in the future in rehab. What do, what would it look like in twenty years? Do you think, or maybe
2: a hundred years? Um, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll, I'll I'll back up it a bit and get to the priming just a bit later because I want to set the table for it um, by just getting people to understand the literature. By the way, there are, I think there are. Many people out there who know more about stroke rehab than I do, but I certainly have a good feel for it from an overall general standpoint. Right, I think that's the one advantage. There, there, there are people who I greatly admire who I think know a lot more than I do, but we won't go there. Um, Maybe we should because we need more guests. I can do that afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't want to embarrass them in front of the group. Um, there you go. But I certainly have worked and continue to work with some people that are just absolutely superb, um, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, uh, some nice up and coming people as well, who I think are are going to help to mold the field. I'm going to use the uh, Marcus and I will talk a bit about the upper extremity, because that's where we've spent most of our time. And that's where I think. We are kind of getting a glimpse as to what we think the future might look like. And and, and I'm not the only person that's talked this way in the past, but I think I'm the only person that's talked about it with the kind of data that we've had available to us. So if you remember, there are 1,307 randomized controlled trials for the upper extremity up until April of 2021, which means there's probably 1,400 now. Well, maybe not quite that much, but getting up there. And, and of those, they, they some of them look at two different interventions, right? So there's probably, I think we calculated there was 1,906 different um, studies of a, a specific intervention. So we have 1,907, I don't know how you word it, um, episodes where an intervention was studied other than conventional care. And so that's a lot of data. It's a lot of data. And when you break the data down and look at it carefully, about 15% of those studies that look at the upper extremity, which we're going to use as our example, but the the data seems to hold true when you go right across the board, are for things that we talked about with regard to standardized care, looking at things like intensity, specifically looking at task specific therapy, looking specifically at getting patients in early, yada, yada, yada. Um, The other 85%, are things we call adjunct therapies, which are outside of those, I think Julie Bernhardt calls them behavioral therapies, those primary behavioral therapies that are utilized uh, as part of standardized care, that sort of one-on-one therapist walking the patient, getting them to move their arm, you know, the stuff that goes on in rehab all the time, and is really the blood and Guts of rehab—the thing that makes it go—is that one-on-one therapist uh, relationship in terms of, with the patient, in terms of getting them to move their arm and try to do various tasks with their arm. Interestingly, as I mentioned before, that accounts for only about fifteen percent of the research. If you count the research based on the number of randomized control trials, the other eighty-five percent of the trials are the, what we mentioned before—the adjunct therapies, which are kind of those additional things you can do, like you talked about mirror therapy, like. RTMS, like robotics, like action observation training, like functional electrical stimulation, that stuff accounts for the vast majority of the research that's currently being conducted in the upper extremity, right? And interestingly, and this is why uh, uh, bringing it up, in most centers, those adjunct therapies are rarely used, even though they account for 85% of the research. We're just doing a big national survey looking at this across Canada, and, you know, the data that's coming back kind of confirms that people are not really utilizing these additional therapies on a consistent basis, and some of the reasons for it are quite uh, concerning because some people will say, well, you know, things like constraint-induced movement therapy or mirror therapies outside my scope of practice, right, which is kind of like, yeah, we got some work to do, right? Right. So, you know, we've got all these these therapies out there. Most of the randomized controlled trials are positive. We just got huge numbers of them. And, and, you know, it's an impressive database that's beginning to support all these adjunct therapies. And many of them have been shown to improve recovery um, and yet or improve recovery versus conventional treatment. And yet we're not utilizing these treatments on anything close to a consistent basis. So if you were to ask me, where is there an opportunity to see if we can improve our outcomes above standardized care, I'd say it's the introduction of these adjunct therapies. And so I think that's really, I think, going to be critical to the future. You know, when we sit down with our our therapists and ask them, you know, do you use the adjunct therapies? The answer is usually not a lot. And why? Well, there's a number of reasons, timing, but it's just like it's not part of the culture. Like it's just not part of the culture, you know? And and and, and you asked them, would you like to do it? And of course we would. I mean, why wouldn't we, right? Uh, I'm trying something new or trying this new technology or this new treatment, but I don't know where to start. It's not what we've traditionally done. It's not what we tend to do. I'm, I'm busy enough as it is. And so these treatments don't get incorporated or added. So, you know, the, re- the reasons are legit and they're fine. But I mean, if we're looking at ways that we might be able to further improve recovery and and, and the next big step, because, you know, one of the things that you get a feeling in stroke rehab is people just not quite sure where we're going to go next. It strikes me that this is a lost opportunity that we could take advantage of. And so... Um, then before I go any further, Marcus, do you have anything you wanted to add to that? No,
3: nope. No, I think you, you covered most of it. I mean, like Bob said, there's just, you know, there's, I mean, I think 50 some interventions that we have with good evidence, you know, five, 10, 20 RCTs, some of these uh, interventions and positive evidence, mind you, you know, that, that supports their use and they're just not being used. So, uh, it is a missed opportunity. You know, you, you say 50. Well, in the, in the entire chapter, we have over 50, we've identified over 50 interventions. I think here, 47 have five or more RCTs. We have 37 with 10 or more, and there are 22 with over 20 RCTs.
2: And there's and there's actually, I think there's five of them with more than 100 RCTs. Yeah. I mean, the data is quite substantive. And and so, we were thinking about this one and, 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 and trying to figure out ways that we could try to encourage or frame this so that therapists and others would be more likely to utilize these treatments. And we came up with the idea and, and, I, and I have to admit, I'm not the first person to come up with the idea, um, but we came up with the idea within the, the, um, the EBSR that we could divide the treatments into two types, the adjunct treatments, those that prime the brain. And I think that's what you were talking about. Actually, three types, those that prime the brain. And we were interested in those and those that sort of facilitate things more peripherally. And then the third, the third group were those that treat complications like pain or spasticity which we were sort of set aside. I mean, those actually, those are treatments that are used probably more often because they often have a, a pharmaceutical company that's promoting them, right? And so they actually have been integrated quite quickly into to stroke rehab care, particularly botulinum toxin, because it's got, a, it's got a big brother who's moving stuff along, right? Who's been able to really facilitate that movement.
1: Hey everybody, I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important. Recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes. But probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's stronger after stroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line, and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right.
2: And so, you know, one of the things we thought of is we would start looking at things like primers and facilitators. So, so primers can be things that are fairly expensive and fairly high tech. So they can be items like RTMS or direct uh, electrical current, um, or they can be simple things like mirror therapy or bilateral arm training or action observation or mental practice i mean i i gave a talk on this and to to the malaysian uh, rehab group uh, about uh eight months ago now and and you know one of the questions was well what if i can't afford an rtms you know because you know in malaysia there's there's some of the best rehab hospitals you'll meet you know, run into anywhere in the world and then there's other hospitals out in the rural areas that are that are really quite limited and i said you know you could get a mirror, (laughs) you know, they're cheap. (laughs) <laughs> you know you can practice and easy to make and easy to make so you know the the, the you know uh, if you can't do um you can do virtual reality fairly easily nowadays with gaming and all that sort of stuff um and so you know there's there was the idea of brain stimulating um therapies that um they they could be these expensive things like rTMS and and like i said transcranial direct current stimulation um or theta burst stimulation or um you know, even EMG biofeedback, um, or they can be really simple things like mirror therapy and bilateral arm treatment, mental practice. Um, all of them, though, do help to prime the brain, and so they seem to provide additional um, prompting of the brain, so that when you do your standardized therapy, patient tends to respond better. Um, that's the thinking, and that was what we promoted so you know we kind of said there one on the one hand you can look at priming the brain on the other hand we argue that you know you could look at perhaps facilitating treatments that these are things that are more i would call specific exercise therapies that work more peripherally so they might be things like um strength training trunk training um even uh, constraint-induced movement therapy, although you could argue that that might have a cognitive component. Or they could be things like sensory stimulation, you know, acupuncture, um, TENS machines, um, muscle vibration, thermal stimulation. um, Or they could be some of the new technologies like robotics or neuromuscular electrical stim, functional electrical stim, et cetera. And those tend to work more peripherally. One of our challenges right now in rehab is we have a lot of evidence and we'll talk a bit later about network meta-analyses and being able to to pinpoint where that evidence might work best. But one of our challenges with adjunct therapies is we have a lot of research evidence, but we don't necessarily have a lot of clinical experience. And I really think that clinical experience is going to be really critical to their adoption and, and trying to figure out where those therapies work best. And on who they work best, I'll give you an example, exoskeleton, you know, the exoskeleton robotics doesn't work on mild stroke patients. It works on severe stroke patients. That's who you use it on. That's who's most likely going to benefit. That's just a simple example of where, you know, clinical experience begins to give you that knowledge base to allow you to decide how to apply these treatments. And also in the future, develop some new research protocols to look at specific groups who might benefit from these treatments. So we would argue, and and we have been arguing, and we just got a letter, uh, we just got an article now uh, making this sort of pitch to, um, uh, as as a commentary in in the archives of FISMED rehabs that we're hoping to get published, uh, which is now under submission. And it argues that, you know, perhaps then we should be encouraging, and certainly we have at our center encouraging our therapists to maybe try one primer and one facilitator, just in that patient, which primer do you think might work, and what, or what facilitator might work, and, you know, pick it based on what you think the treatment's going to do, and based on what patient you've got in front of you and whether they would benefit or not, and try and develop that expertise in these treatments and see if we don't start getting better outcomes. Um, Because the studies would suggest that adding these treatments to our current standardized treatment has the potential to further improve those motor recovery outcomes, which is interesting. And you know, you asked me where do I think it's going to go down the road? Rehab, I think it's going to be the use of these adjunct therapies. It's become more and more prominent as a way of trying to further improve um, clinical recovery.
0: You know, one of the things Pete and I talk about a lot on the podcast establishing a home program or a home exercise program from the beginning of therapy so that you can try it with your patient and then. Give them the materials that they need, the instructions that they need to use that when they're not in therapy. And then that way you have time with them to talk to them, to see if they understand what they're doing, to see if it's actually doing the priming, if it's making a difference, and then you're setting them up for more success when they go home, which seems to be important here in the US, especially because they're cutting back on the number of treatment days that they will allow a person to remain in patient rehab.
2: Yeah. Um, but the, you know when you think about home therapy, to some extent, the way you're describing it, it's, it's still that intense the issue, right? It's that repetition, doing the same thing over and over again that I think is so critical to rehab. No one's going to argue. And you know, they when they go home, we find they tend to do better in some ways because it's more task specific, right? and, and they're yeah. more
0: into it. Um, but I feel like you're setting them up for success though. When you st- if you start if you get them started doing it when they're with you, you can give them that feedback, you can help make sure that they understand what they're supposed to do and then create a true home program for them for when they leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's kind of how I think about it.
2: And some of the, you know, and and, and just to speak to, you know, the importance of 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 continuity of care when they go home. They, the, if you look at the constrained, uh, sorry, the early supported discharge literature that was published, uh, meta-analysis was published back in 2012, they 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 very carefully looked at who benefited uh from early supported discharge. And interestingly, um, you know, early supported discharge, as you know, is when patients are discharged early, but they're still given a similar degree of rehab therapy out in the community. They just don't get the nursing. All right. And the Brits were really big on that, as you know, for quite some time. And it's become the are still the real leaders in that area. Um, But what they were able to demonstrate was that, you know, if the same therapist treated the patient in the hospital and then treated them at home, that same therapist, they got much better results than if they did a handoff to uh, another therapist, right? And if there was no handoff, just a written note, they actually did a little worse. And so overall, early supportive discharge came back positive because this, the studies that looked at, the specific studies that looked at that uh, therapist continuity throughout had such positive results that it carried the rest of them. All right. And it speaks to the importance of continuity of care. Um, it's a really cool idea that showed up in that study. And I think is, is something we all intuitively know, but don't practice very well. Um, we, we, we do have a lot of outpatient therapy in our center and to try and we do do a lot of the rehab in the patient's home we have a special program for that that does the full rehab in the patient's home uh, or or they come to the hospital one or the other and we've been working on this idea of a warm handoff to try and incorporate because i think it's too much of a paradigm shift for us to have the same therapist managing patients in the hospital and in the the community, and that's just too much for us to get our heads around. You know, we're not there yet, but we do do this thing called a warm handoff where, you know, the therapist that's going to be managing the community may come in for a day and study how they're doing near the, the end of their stay um, and can just easily then pick up from what was going on in the in house piece when they go back into the community. That, that kind of got me wandering off in another direction. But I think it's it's an important point that we often miss another opportunity to make things better by making sure that we're careful with regard to continuity of care. And I think we're a little sloppy on that one. You know, when people leave the hospital, people kind of assume, okay, I wrote my discharge summary and that's it, right? And then the next one picks them up, reads the discharge summary, and then, you know, patients complain, they do the assessment all over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. and may even treat me differently uh, yeah. than what's worked before. So, you know, that's, that's, that's just a, that's a little off topic a bit, but um, I think an interesting observation.
1: I, no, it's not off topic at all. And in fact, our listenership, a lot of them are OTs. We think there's a lot of folks that have had brain injury. There's a lot of caregivers. There's some PTs as well. And, you know, nothing warms the cockles of the heart of a therapist than to know that they're missed. <laughs> and so they work on these huge, they have more contact time with them than with the patient than anybody else, practically. And now they've made this emotional connection and that helps drive recovery. It makes sense that if you provide that bridge, it's gonna help things. And I think any therapist listening to this might start to think about how can we do a, what'd you call it a warm handoff? Warm handoff.
2: Warm handoff, and other centers do it. It's not unique. Um, I've heard it done in many other places. Because I think people recognize the importance of that continuity as a way to, you know, provide better care and it doesn't cost more money. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's just a different model. It's certainly much more patient centered. Sometimes we forget that, you know, a lot of the care we provide is provider driven and not necessarily patient driven. So, you know, that's a good example of where it's much more provider and much more patient driven.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.